0: Welcome, everybody, to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 243 recap on Twitter Spaces. We have a special guest who will introduce himself shortly. I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and also executive director at Brink, funding open source Bitcoin developers.
1: Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I do Bitcoin stuff at Chaincode Labs. I've been working on reviewing a BIP and writing a BIP this week.
2: And Elkos? Hi everyone, I'm Alekos. Until recently, I was the let's say lead maintainer of BDK, of the BDK library. Now it's I'm kind of in between not really in between jobs, but yeah, I'm kind of stepping down from BDK a little bit, so it's kind of unclear what I'm doing right now. But yeah, I'm here representing BDK even though I'm not anymore lead maintainer of, of the project.
0: And we don't have a BDK related news item this week, but there is a major restructuring that we covered in the PR section. And I think it would be interesting to have some thoughts on that. So I thought it would be great to have a a look about BDK 793 later in our discussion. So thank you for joining us. Like I said, there's there's no news items this week that we noted in 243, but we do have a monthly segment in which we highlight interesting updates to Bitcoin wallet services and other client software that use Bitcoin or Lightning, and there was quite a few updates that I found in trolling through my notes and some of the repositories that I take a look at, so we can kind of jump in and go through that first. Merch, any any announcements before we jump into that? I don't have any. All right. Well, the first interesting client software update that we noted this week is Zappo Bank supporting Lightning. And so I think folks maybe have heard of Zappo before, I think that they're now called Zappo bank because I think they spun off the custodian portion to Coinbase and are left with this Zappo bank and they have a series of mobile apps and they announced support for those mobile apps to be able to send lightning payments using those lightning mobile apps. And they've mentioned the underlying infrastructure provider as LightSpark. Merch, any thoughts on that integration?
1: I have not tried it out myself yet. I think it's pretty cool that a bona fide bank is getting on the payment rails of Bitcoin, even if it was a Bitcoin company first.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's also interesting. I, I think LightSpark, there's some mystique and, and mystery about what they're working on. So it's nice to see that some of that behind the scenes work that they're doing is is coming to fruition and, and with a fairly large player and a, and a bank. So it's interesting to see. Hopefully we see more from LightSpark.
1: I don't have a lot of inside knowledge there, but it sounded to me like they first decided that they were going to do something with Lightning, and then they tried to figure out what their product's going to be. So I think that might have added to the mystique. Perhaps.
0: The second thing that we noted in the newsletter was a TypeScript library for Miniscript descriptors. Being So TypeScript is is a JavaScript-based language, and there is now the descriptor library with the fairly uncreative name of bitcoin descriptors library which has support for psbts descriptors and miniscript and then there's also as part of the psbt process the the signing or the finalizing there is a support for single signing as well as hardware signing merch did you get a chance to to look at this library at all
1: i did look at it a little bit so i didn't look at the code too much but i was very impressed By the readme, the readme looks very elaborate and well-readable. And the other thing that really impressed me is that the whole project appears to have started only in January. So they're only two months in and they seem to have broad support for a bunch of things already. So whoever is going to use that, I think you'll enjoy the documentation they're writing. Yeah, let me know what what the code's like when you look at that more.
0: I found after the fact that there's actually a, a web, so I, we link to the GitHub for the project, which is what we usually do. Sometimes we're actually listening to the project's website if there is one. And I, I wasn't aware of the, that there was one, but in preparing for the spaces, I did stumble across the bitcoinerlab.com website, which has even more documentation and discussion about what this library does. So in addition to the readme that Merch was impressed with, there's even more documentation on their website. So check that out. I noticed... There's talk of Miniscript, there's talk of Descriptors. I don't see anything policy-related and, and maybe merge it's a good opportunity, although I think we've done it a few months ago to maybe just quickly outline, like, what's the difference between Miniscript, Descriptors, and Policy?
1: I think that, yeah, so there's multiple levels of Miniscript. Miniscript by itself is a subset of Descript language that is, well, that is not ambiguous, I guess. So, You can, with Miniscript policy, describe a somewhat human readable policy of what you want the wallet to behave like, and then the Miniscript compiler will compile that to Miniscript, which in turn is a more readable representation of an underlying script as in the Bitcoin transaction language. So I assume that they just cover all of that and don't the reader with the distinctions there immediately, but... I have not looked to that level to confirm that.
2: I don't have any experience with this library specifically. I think maybe they they only do like the second step where you have a descriptor and you want to create a script row between scripts given the descriptor so that you can use it for generating addresses or monitoring, you know, funds, if you've received some funds or something like that. So maybe that's probably a bit easier just, just implementing this descriptor to script compared to the full mini script libraries, like the Rust mini script and the C++ library, then they also have the compiler. So those libraries, they take the very high level description and they compile it down. Maybe that's a lot of complexity that they maybe don't really care about initially. So they just want to start with, you give me the script or I can give you scripts so you can monitor addresses and et cetera. That's already like a big chunk of what most users need actually. Most of the time you just need that if you have, I don't know, a JavaScript wallet, you're you fine with just that, you don't need a compiler in, in your project, so.
0: Yeah, that's good insight, and to Merch's point, this it seems like a fairly young project, so potentially some of that stuff could be added in the future. The next item that we noted was Breeze Lightning SDK being announced, and we linked to a blog post from Breeze announcing this open source SDK. It seems like they're targeting mobile developers, and specifically mobile developers that are building apps that aren't necessarily Bitcoin focused or wallet focused. So it's a way to add in and Lightning features to an existing app. So it would be nice to see some adoption of this SDK because it would mean broader adoption of of Lightning and Bitcoin in the mobile app realm, which is interesting. And the SDK behind the scenes, in order to fulfill on that Lightning integration, and some of the, the Bitcoin features actually uses Greenlight, which is a block stream product, and then they also provide some of their own Breeze LSP features. And I think there's some fiat on and off ramps that they're planning to work on using Moon Moonpay behind the scenes. And so it's it's pretty cool. It's nice to see Greenlight also getting some usage. Merch, did you get a chance to look at the SDK and some of the features?
1: I have not dived into deeply, but the, the idea that you can just provide a wrapper for all of the lightning interactions seems very sensible to me. Just like with a credit card, you don't really need to know how the credit card works under the hood to understand the concept that you can use it to, well, perform a payment that somehow in the background is settled between your bank and the merchant right so if they actually manage to wrap up everything that needs to happen in the background and you essentially just come down to a i need to pay this amount and it's maybe even presented in in fiat and they have wrapped all the around for for the user well presumably lightning payments but yeah that. Sounds pretty like a pretty sweet application of using Greenlight in the background and, and plugging it into a front end like breeze.
0: Yeah, very cool. And for folks who aren't familiar with with Greenlight and how that fits in here, is that a node will actually be provisioned that is managed by the Greenlight Blockstream team, but they don't hold your keys. They they never have any of the keys, or the keys never touch their infrastructure. So. They're merely the ones managing the node. So these users would have their own node and then their own keys as well. And my understanding from the announcement from Breeze is also that if there's multiple apps that integrate Breeze that the quote unquote end user can actually see the same balance across their different apps. So there'd be like one balance shared between the apps if if folks are using the Breeze SDK, which is pretty cool. I haven't tried it, didn't run the SDK, but just from their announcement and digging into some of the documentation, that's what I gleaned.
1: I think it's also interesting to see that now that Lightning infrastructure is maturing and more services are offering sort of packaged products, the possibility to take multiple of them and plug them together to offer yet another composed product is growing, right? And yeah, so Greenlight... On the one hand, here doing the heavy lifting on the Lightning Network side, Breeze offering basically the repackaging, the wrapper, the integration with other processes is pretty cool. Kind of reminds me how LDK plugs into Blue Wallet to do the heavy lifting on the Lightning side, where Blue Wallet now can offer a non self custodial Lightning to its users. I think it's really nice to see how things are coming together slowly and products are are getting more refined that way. The next
0: piece of software that we spoke about in this segment of the newsletter is PSBT-based exchange open Ordex launches. And this is an open source exchange, essentially for trading ordinals using PSBTs. And since you're actually trading Bitcoin for Bitcoin, it can all be done in this Pre signed PSBT, or I guess the seller signs their portion of the PSBT, and that acts as part of an order book that somebody can then complete by signing and then broadcasting the rest of that PSBT to the network. Merch, any thoughts on this? I, I thought it was interesting that PSBT functioned as like an order in sort of like an order book. I think there's like Nostr involved here as well for some of the order book stuff, but. PSPT is like the the format that this order book is being passed around in.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of... I mean, <laughs> as I may have mentioned before, I'm not really that much following the whole ordinal inscription movement or hype, but it is a kind of nifty way of of presenting and producing this marketplace. So when when an inscription is written to the blockchain, The inscription is sort of attached to one specific Satoshi, and the ordinal scheme, of course, gives a framework with how they supposedly are tracked and uniquely identified. So you can sort of say, well, exactly, this Satoshi owns the inscription and I I saw another PSBT-based Ordinal marketplace being announced on Twitter the other day. And they basically use a transaction structure where the first input is just a dummy input. And then the second input basically provides the Satoshi that holds the inscription and also leaves a slot open for the buyer to put their own address, right? And... Since you can have SIGHASH flags, or each signature in Bitcoin has a modifier that says what parts of the transaction it com- commits to. And if you use the SIGHASH single flag, you can set that you're just um, committing to certain inputs and outputs. So in this case, for example, you would build a transaction that has certain parts still open that the other side that wants to take the offer can plug into. But then you you provide the input and thus determine what you're offering to sell. And you also provide an output, which basically says how much money will appear in a specific address of yours. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of nifty, even though I, I'm not really that excited about the whole thing. But, yeah, kind of cool how they're doing that.
0: I see Rindell in the spaces giving thumbs up. I think it was... His tweet that I saw originally that was that brought this project to my attention. So, next item that we saw that was notable for the Bitcoin Optech community was BTC Pay server CoinJoin plugin being released, and I think the BTC Pay folks had some announcements on on Twitter, but I think the most comprehensive announcement was from the Wasabi Wallet team. So we noted their blog post in the newsletter and it's an opt-in feature for BTC pay server merchants that can turn this on and the plugin supports the Wabi Sabi protocol for coin joins. And so I think there's, if you dig into the post a bit, there's a few different ways in which you can be doing coin joins and one that we didn't explicitly outline was that merchants can actually, when they when they do their scheduled payouts, can actually use coin to do those payouts as a secondary option within this plugin. So take a look at the write up from Wasabi, and if you're into coin and you're into Wasabi and you're BTC Pay merchant, check it out. Merch, did you dig into this item at all?
1: Yeah, I did read the blog post. I. <laughs> I wanted to point out maybe what sort of thread model people are thinking about when they are considering to use this plugin. So... You may have seen, for example, when when big exchanges do consolidations on, on the network, like Binance recently, that people immediately see, oh, this is Binance doing consolidations. And why is it so easy to tell? Well, in Binance's case, Binance actually reu- heavily reuses singular addresses. And so they have like one address that's responsible for their hot wallet, one address that, or maybe a few, but very few. So... Whenever somebody deposits into Binance, they'll see their funds flow to the hot or cold wallet of Binance afterwards. So it's extremely obvious to to anybody watching, well, which funds go through Binance and and end up there. The same can be mitigated a little more if you, instead of using the same address for, for your hot wallet over and over again if you use new addresses as you should, and especially if you use a separate address for every single deposit of the same user. So even though you could have a single address for a depositor that they can always deposit into the same address and you know how to how to tie their deposit to their IOU or the list in the database. So, well, anyway, the problem with that is if you are a merchant and somebody comes and pays for a product in your store, they learn what UTXO, or they know, of course, what UTXO they created in order to pay you. And if they keep track of that, they might be able to fingerprint your wallet. And if you spend that UTXO with a bunch of other coins, you they, they might learn about other addresses of your wallet. So inherently... If you have a large volume of payments, it might be difficult for you to to have financial privacy. And for example, you don't want to leak to competitors how much your how much volume your shop is doing or whether you're cash strapped currently and your money is moving extremely quickly because you have to pay for deliveries with with the money you just took in or other things that people might learn by using by watching your financials, right? So the idea here is instead of just directly scooping up all your funds and consolidating them into one address, you can move them through a coin join where it gets potentially mixed with a bunch of other m- merchants or other users that are participating in, in Wasabi's coin join scheme. And that way you break the mystery shopper attack and you you also break the common input heuristic that says probably all inputs on that transaction belong to the same wallet. So, yeah, privacy is not a crime, <laughs> just in case that wasn't clear. It is... So the, the, the crime supposedly is money laundering, but just keeping your financials private is not a crime and actually a good business sense. So, well, that went on a little longer than I thought. Did that, uh, that was good make con- sense?
0: Yeah, that was great context. Thanks for, for walking through that, Merch. The next item that we noted in the client and services updates section of the newsletter is mempool.space, adding enhanced CPFP support So mempool.space is a block explorer, and they've had support for Child Pays for Parent previously. And what Child Pays for Parent is, is a technique for fee bumping a transaction. So if I have a transaction that's, say, paying one Satoshi per V-byte in the mempool, and it's not getting confirmed at the speed that I had hoped, I can actually create a child transaction at a higher fee rate let's say 10 satoshis per vbyte and because that child transaction depends on the parent transaction when a miner is looking at including that one satoshi per vbyte in a block it'll actually consider that hey i actually get this 10 satoshi per vbyte transaction with it which has the effect of raising the fee rate the effective fee rate of the parent transaction And so that's been represented in mempool.space's block explorer for transactions that are in the mempool. There was this additional field for effective fee rate. So instead of seeing the one Satoshi per V byte fee, you'd actually see the effective fee rate, including that child transaction for transactions that were in the mempool, but this new change that they have has a similar user interface and similar data for transactions that are already confirmed. So if you look at an old block and you see that the average fee rate is 20 Satoshis per V byte, and you see this transaction in there that was paying one Satoshi per V byte, now you get the context of that and it'll actually include ancestor and descendant information about transactions that are in a block which would maybe enlighten somebody as to why a, a low fee rate transaction got confirmed because it had some descendants that paid for its fee rate essentially. Merch, did you get a chance to to look at this and maybe you want to augment or or correct any of the CPFP information that I outlined about and then that space?
1: No, you did a marvelous job of explaining all that. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited that there now surfacing that information, because previously the minimum fee rate on blocks could really be confusing if really the effective fee rate of all transactions in a block was say 20 sats per vbyte or more. Sometimes if a package of transactions came in with a low fee rate parent and a high fee rate child, it would look like, like there would that the minimum fee rate was lower in the block but really it actually all fit because the child paid for it and it it was sensible to include the transaction.
0: Next item from the newsletter that we noted was Sparrow version 1.7.3 being released. And this release includes BIP-129 support for multi-sig wallet setups and custom block explorer support among other features. So merch. I think we've talked about another wallet standardization, which is similar. And I get confused by this sometimes, which is BIP329 is the labeling BIP, the ability to label transactions and inputs and outputs and addresses, I think is BIP1329, which was assigned in the last few months. This is similar in that it's a multi-sig wallet setup BIP, but it's BIP129. We haven't talked about this much in the, in the newsletter or in our spaces. Are, are you familiar enough with BIP-129 to maybe give a, a quick overview, Merch?
1: Yeah, so BIP-129 is an informational BIP, and it is basically a standard, or maybe not informational, in the, but rather it's a procedure on how multiple different wallets could coordinate if they want to build a transaction together. So we've, we've talked a bunch about PSBT and descriptors in the last month's. But the part that was missing still is how do wallets even start talking to each other in order to exchange that information with each other? So BIP 129 addresses the the steps on like, let me quote from the BIP. So whether the multi sig configuration is correct and not tampered with, whether the keys are leaked during the setup and whether designer must persist information and in what format, right? So it basically gives a framework for wallet implementers on how to talk to other wallets to coordinate a multi-sig transaction. Then of course, once you have coordinated and you're talking to each other, you can use the protocols that are specified like music on how to actually produce the signatures and securely coordinate that. But like, how do you even coordinate that you want to make a transaction together? So I think this was written by a few wallet developers that basically were interested in in having a standard on how to do this together. I see names of people that work on Nunchuck, CoinKite, Shift Crypto, being a hardware wallet producer. I don't know who Aaron Chen is, but Rodolfo Nova also CoinKite, right? Cold Card.
0: The next piece of software we noted this week was Stack Wallet, adding coin control and BIP47 slash PayNim features. Merch, I don't know if you want to scold me for linking to the coin selection entry on Optech for, with coin control. I know I, I sort of use those a bit interchangeably, and I know you have a preference for coin selection versus coin control the the meaning of of each but both of these are privacy sort of related features or potential privacy features added to the stack wallet which is not a wallet we've covered previously
1: yeah i hadn't seen stack wallet before either it looks like it is a wallet for monero bitcoin bitcoin cash and a few other things it well so the features that we described in our newsletter seemed to include coin control, which yes, I distinguish from coin selection. In my opinion, coin selection is the term to use when you're talking about the automated process of how your wallet picks the coins it is using to to fund a transaction, aka input selection, whereas coin control usually refers to when the user has the ability to manually select which UTXOs they want to spend. And yeah, I, I've also seen people use coin control for coin selection and vice versa. So there seems to be some confusion here. Yeah, other than that, it seems to be GPL licensed. And I don't know what Dart is as a programming language.
0: I so think that's I Google's... have not,
1: no idea about this wallet beyond that.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Dart is like a Google a Google language. That I think maybe does something with Java or JavaScript. Yeah, so I guess with, with the we can make everybody angry because we covered PayNims, which is like a samurai thing. We've covered Wasabi, and we've covered Ordinals, so everybody can be angry about our coverage of of software this week. The last one is Wasabi, so we noted Wasabi's kind of a WabiSabi plugin for BTC Pay, and the last one here is Wasabi Wallet version 2.0.3 being released and actually was released the day before the newsletter. So when the Wasabi developers actually appended commit, which did this write-up. And this adds taproot coin join signing and taproot change outputs along with also coin selection or sorry, coin control, sorry, merge for sending and then some speed improvements and additional changes that were less relevant to the Optech audience. Any thought on Wasabi Merge?
1: This time you did it on purpose, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in this release, they, they have opt-in manual coin control for payments. So I think on the one hand that is always cool for actual power users that want to keep track really for every single UTXO that they receive and spend where it's coming from what who knows about the ownership of that utxo what other context might be available and they that want to be extremely deliberate about what they mix and don't mix but in the long term i don't think that is a viable scalability strategy for for privacy right if you expect everybody to jump to through these sort of hoops you just end up most people not doing any of it so that's that's why I tend to think more about how coin selection should work so we can hopefully automate most of that and, and have good standards for how wallets pick transactions that have good privacy automatically, maybe even recognize context or allow you to, to label addresses when you receive and then deduce context from that. But yeah, it's a long road. We'll get there eventually. And meanwhile, power users can do it manually.
0: We noted one release this week in the newsletter, which is LND 0.16.0 Beta RC3. And I know last week we mentioned that we were going to pull in someone who could walk us through the features of this release similar to what we did with Core Lightning a few weeks back. And that is underway the Lightning Labs folks preferred to jump on and talk with us about the, the features after this is actually released. So we'll get them either next week or the week after, and I think they'll provide a better overview of this release than, than we could. So I'm okay punting it again, Merch, if you are. All right, great. Speaking of L&D, the first notable code change, l 7448, adds a new rebroadcaster in a interface to resubmit unconfirmed transactions merch why would lnd need to be resubmitting unconfirmed transactions to be
1: broadcast so in the past few well months at this point there's been a new sort of demand on block space and we've actually had a growing subset of transactions that have not confirmed in a very long time we are now at over 916 megabytes of memory usage for mempool.space's mempool monitor, which is clearly slightly more than the 300 megabyte that mempools by default hold. So everything below 4.99 sats per byte is currently being purged from the mempool or from default mempools. So what LND is addressing here is when a transaction gets dropped from other mempools, there is no mechanism for someone with a big mempool, such as mempool.space, for example, that will get the transaction resubmitted to other people's mempools. So having a bigger mempool is actually not helpful unless you are a miner and are worried that eventually the mempool will be empty and you will want to include transactions that you had previously purged or that default mempools had previously purged so there has been work in the past on bitcoin core to make every node rebroadcast transactions when they had transactions that they would have included in the previous block but didn't see in the block that is still I, I guess that's just starting up again there was a break there in in the author of those prs not working on it for a while but For L&D concretely to solve their own problem, where the wallet is responsible for for keeping transactions in mempools and making sure that, that they get rebroadcast if they didn't confirm yet, they are now adding this rebroadcaster interface. And what it does specifically is it offers the transaction to the connected full node. And of course, if the full node already has the transaction, it will not resubmit it to its peers. So there's no big privacy loss here, but if the attached full node has purged the transaction previously, but now the minimum fee rate of their mempool is low enough that it would fit again, the node will accept it again from the L&D and will of course also then offer it to its peers again, since it's new content of it, a new inventory. LND was doing this already when it was running in neutrino mode, because in a neutrino node, it doesn't have a dedicated full node that it's talking to, but can just communicate with any nodes that offer BIP-157, 158, which is the client-side compact block filters. And now... Also, if you have a dedicated full node, it will every block try to resubmit unconfirmed transactions to that full node. And that full node, if it hadn't had that transaction but can accept it now, will relay it. So this is a mechanism on how to get transactions back in the mempool after they were dropped.
0: Merch, do you have a preference, personal preference or opinion on whether this should be a wallet responsibility or responsibility of, at the node level?
1: I think I can argue both sides. So if it's a wallet responsibility, you get the advantage that if you change your mind and the transaction was purged widely from mempools, you can just not rebroadcast it, but rebroadcast a different variant. That plays well even if you had signaled finality on your transaction originally, and you're mostly connected to a network that respects the finality of transactions aka doesn't do mempool full RBF yet. Uh, It doesn't matter nearly as much if the whole network moves to mempool full RBF because then every transaction that just pays more fees will propagate. So if you change your mind, you, you can just write a new variant that conflicts with the original and whether it's been dropped from mempools or not, it will propagate if it just pays more fees. So that's actually one reason why I think mempool full RBF would be more useful now than it had been when it was originally proposed, because with the extremely full mempools lately, I I would expect that more people have stuck transactions and need to rebroadcast them. So that's why why it might have been better for wallets to have the ownership or the, the onus of making sure when a transaction gets rebroadcast. The receiver also has an interest of transactions going through because if they get paid, they want to, of course, make sure that the payment goes through. So a receiver might also want to rebroadcast transactions that pay them. Finally, I think it would be a huge boon for privacy because, of course, when a wallet continues to rebroadcast a transaction, the nodes that are connected to the The node that serves the wallet will see that a transaction gets offered more often than it should be from specific nodes. And they can deduce that the node is connected to the original sender or maybe receiver of this payment transaction. So if we instead move to a paradigm where every node, when it sees that it has a transaction that should have been included in the previous block, but didn't get included... When it says, hey, that should have been in the last block, let me rebroadcast that, that would lead to every single node doing these rebroadcasts and thus getting much better privacy for sender and receiver in that case. So in the long run, I would hope A, that we just get away from opt-in RBF and move to full RBF where every transaction is just evaluated on the merit of the fees that it is paying currently, and then B. Every node rebroadcasts every transaction whenever they see that it should have been included.
0: Thanks for elaborating on that, Merch. Anything else on this LND rebroadcast PR?
1: No, I think that is all.
0: Well, the last pull request that we highlighted in the newsletter this week is BDK 793. And our special guest has been waiting 45 minutes to walk us through this PR. So without further ado, what what is this major restructuring of BDK? What is the, the BDK Core project? And, and maybe just give us a, a quick overview of BDK, how Core fits in and maybe the evolution of those two different pieces of software.
2: Yeah, so well, maybe I'll start from the last question. So what is BDK? BDK is a Rust that can be used to build generic Bitcoin wallets. And when I say generic, I mean generic in terms of policy. So we were talking about Miniscript before. BDK uses many scripts, so you can build a wallet. I don't know. That is a simple single C, You can build a multi sig. You can build complex wallets where you have time locks and, and complex conditions. And this is what we mean by generic. Like in theory, with BDK, you can build, let's say, any kind of wallet you want. Obviously, there are limitations, but that's kind of the goal. So, so we want to basically build a library that is very flexible that can adapt to different use cases, like you're building a desktop wallet, mobile wallet, or web wallet we want to be able to do a bit of everything. And BDK has been, it's project we we started in 2020, I think. So it's been kind of been developed for two or three years now. And at some point we realized that if you, basically BDK would work well for most use cases, like for most users, especially users that don't need any kind of advanced features, like users that maybe don't even have a deep knowledge of Bitcoin, they just want to build something kind of simple, for, for those users, BDK would work well, but as soon as somebody wanted to do something a bit more complicated, some kind of more complex protocols, some kind of basically something that would need a more low-level access, BDK would not work really well for them because BDK is this kind of simple API that you use, and if the API is good for you, that, that's fine, but if you need something more low-level, you will not really be able to do that. And the other thing we realized was that BDK was this kind of monolithic thing that would do a little bit of everything. So when you think of a wallet, you have many different components that, that work together. So, for example, you have you have code to monitor the chain, so you can see when you receive funds. You have code to do coin selection, for example. You have logic to create a transaction. When you construct a transaction, obviously you do coin selection, but on top of that, there's also some logic for setting the correct fields, the correct and log time and sequence, stuff like that. And VDK was just one library basically doing all of this. And we also realized that maybe some people would be interested in using some of these components, maybe not necessarily the old BDK library. Maybe somebody is just interested in taking the code to monitor the chain for, I don't know, some project they're building. So for what this reason, so for, since we wanted to offer a more low level access, and since we wanted users to be able to use individual kind of pieces of BDK, we started this BDK core sub-project, or it was kind of a parallel project that went on for a little while. So BDK, the library was still being developed, but in the meantime, some other people, mainly Lloyd, LL, they, they were working on this BDK core concept. And the idea was to basically have different components that work together, but that can also be used independently. And so at this point, I think BDK core has been going on for many months, maybe even a year. I don't remember exactly when it started. At this point, we are confident BDK Core, or let's say using the BDK Core components together would make a much better BDK because it would give users a lot more flexibility. They would be able to get a more low-level access if they want to, while they could also keep using kind of the same old API if all these components work together. So they don't necessarily have to use the low-level thing. They can also use all of them together and just get the easy API. And so this PR, this 7.93 was basically merging these BDK core components within BDK. So now the BDK repo is composed of a few different crates. So there are the, the crates is just Rust language for like packages. And so now there are in the BDK repo, there are these BDK core components that you can use independently if you want. And then there's the BDK crate, which is which has been refactored to essentially use those components inside. So If you are a BDK user and you're using the full library, the API doesn't really change all that much. There are improvements there as well that are kind of a consequence of the BDK core restructuring. So the normal BDK API is improving a little bit. It's getting more flexible, but it's mostly staying unchanged. So for BDK users, it doesn't really make any difference. But for maybe users that looked into BDK in the past and, and, I don't know, figured BDK would not be for them because it was not flexible enough to not offer something with this refactoring it would maybe be useful for them like it could become useful for them they, they could reevaluate because now they w- would get this lower level access kind of thing yeah i uh, i think this is pretty much all i don't know if i've covered what you had in mind no that,
0: that was great maybe a, a quick note from you about whether it's new users or existing users of bdk maybe the, the timing and what you're looking for in terms of testing or, or or feedback on this what, what should folks do if they're interested or they're using BDK currently
2: yeah that's a really good question so i would say so i'm not super up to date about the time I say when when this is going to be ready and released because the original plan was to be ready at the beginning of this year so this thing has been delayed a little bit and as i said before now i'm kind of lowering my effort there so i don't know when this will be like ready. But the fact that it's been merged into master, it means that it's, you know, getting there. So now that mainly what we need is testing and feedback from users. So what I would say is if you're a user of BDK, you could try switching to basically to using master instead of using a release version and see, you know, see what happens. You probably are going to have to make some changes to the way you interact with BDK. It should be mostly minor changes, but I don't know if something goes wrong. If for some reason you need, big changes, let us know. So for current users, I would say just try to update and, and see what happens and provide feedback. For people who are considering using BDK, maybe just don't look at the current release version because the current currently the latest release is still based on the old architecture. So maybe if you look at the latest release, you think, oh, BDK is not for me. If you want to spend some time, look at this PR and look at the documentation around BDK core, Because once this will be released, I think it will be a pretty major change in terms of how powerful the library will be, what what kind of things it will offer. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Merch, do you have any questions or comments on this BDK PR and the bigger
1: project? No, that sounds great. Yeah. So the way I understood it is you basically have refactored the the inner parts or the inner workings of BDK into a library that you use yourself to still provide the old API of BDK. But now the library components themselves are standalone usable by other people that have needs that are more low level. Is that a good summary?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. So now we have like, most of the refactoring was actually around the, Code that monitors the chain and the code that persists, like your transactions, your UTXOs on disk. So, this is where we focus the most. So, there are like components that you can use if you have a project that just needs to monitor the chain. You can just use those components individually without having the whole BDK wallet thing. Then, I think one other component was. The coin selection because before it was kind of embedded within BDK. Now it's a separate module, I think. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but it, that was one of the ideas with BDK Core. So if it's not there yet, it should come soon. And then, yeah, that is pretty much it. And then BDK has been refactored to use those components internally.
1: Very good. Cool. That's also impressive that you guys managed to do that so quickly. And you know, we've been working on this for Bitcoin Core for five years or so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think. Being a smaller project, obviously, it's much easier to, to iterate and, and move faster. And on, on Bitcoin Core, it's you know, everything takes longer. If
0: anybody in the spaces has a question, feel free to raise your hand or request speaker access. We did have one comment that I wanted to get your thoughts on, Merch, which is someone saying CPFP is a crime against Bitcoin. Merch, what do you think about CPFP being a crime against Bitcoin or not?
1: I feel like that has a little could use more context. i I think that generally, there's different approaches on how you can change your mind about transactions or reprioritize transactions. So of course, replace by fee, where you just make a conflicting transaction that has a higher fee rate, is cleaner in that it uses less block space. But that obviously can only done be done by the sender. CPFP is also available to recipients. Either of them have a privacy impact in if somebody watches for what transactions conflict with each other, they can probably guess if different inputs were used that the other inputs are also controlled by the same sender or senders, with CPFP, they will guess that either the recipient or the sender attached their transactions, so they might be able to to glean more information on who the output went to in, in that regard. I don't know what else would be criminal about CPFP, so more context would help.
3: Hey, Rindell. Hey, good morning. I actually came up, I had a question about the new BDK 1.0 architecture. Really excited to see the refactoring happening. I've written a lot of small processes that just use parts of BDK, but you kind of had to create the whole wallet even if you didn't use all of it. So I'm I'm excited to, you know, be able to kind of pick and choose components out of BDK to use. Do you think that the the big refactoring is also going to have an impact on like the the APIs that are exposed through the FFI layer to you know languages like Swift or Kotlin or do you think it's primarily going to be like a Rust component refactor I'm I'm thinking about different projects that I work on that use BDK and and trying to get some sense of like how much code we're going to have to go rewrite if it's mostly just on the Rust side that's kind of different than if those changes flow through all the layers of FFI to get to something like Swift or Kotlin?
2: I think some changes will get to FFI as well, but it should be mostly smaller changes. Because I mean the FFI tries to mirror as much as possible the Rust API. And one of the goals here is not is to not change the Rust API too much. But if we do change and one thing where where it needs to change for sure is around the syncing, because again most of BDK core was focused around monitoring the chain. So syncing is the term we use in BDK for synchronizing your internal state with the chain. So I don't know if there are new transactions for you, you store them in in your kind of cache. So so the code around syncing will change a little bit, but it's, maybe you can see, you can check out the examples in the PR. I think it's like four lines of code that needs to change in Rust. And it's probably gonna be like more or less the same in FFI because again, we kind of mirror the API as much as possible.
3: Great, thanks.
0: Doesn't
2: look like there's any other questions.
0: Merch, anything else that you would like the listeners to be aware of before we sign off?
1: Oh, I found another way how CPFP could be a crime. So I know of some Bitcoin developers that would much prefer if we weren't able to spend unconfirmed outputs at all. So in that regard, it might also be a crime. All right. No, I I have nothing else. Uh, Thank uh, you, Rinda, for your question. You could could
3: do CPFP Mm -hmm. CPFP for PSBT offers and ordinals and just piss off more people.
1: If we're just looking to be angry about things, there's plenty to go around lately.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you, Alakos, for joining us and talking about BDK. Thanks to my co-host, Merch. And thank you all for joining and participating in CoinOptech newsletter number 243. And We'll talk to you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thank you.